0: Reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you. And you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and in your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, What does the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded, that will be our righteousness
1: was a little bit overeager to get up a minute ago um, at the end of the prayer kind of half to my feet before you know Kurt and Mikey kind of went wait, wait. and Mikey just said God first so I think that's fair it's a helpful reminder isn't it? Yeah. now yeah uh, if um, if, a Q- if a QTC student was to do what I'm about to do in a sermon I'd probably yell at them in a godly and constructive way for their long-term good Um, but I'm not a student, so I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Please please don't do this to any group of people who haven't paid to listen, and even then only do it with uh, great trepidation. I'm going to uh, read you a couple of paragraphs from a book. Now, normally I would just pretend that I wrote it, but too many of you will have read the book and I'd get caught. So this this is from Paul Tripp's Dangerous Calling. I I just couldn't say it any better. Uh, Here's what Paul says. Every human being has been hardwired by God to live in daily awe of him. This means the deepest, most life-shaping, practical, daily motivation of every human being was designed to be the awe of God. This is the calling of every person, the umbrella of protection over every person. This is the reality that is to define and give shape to every other reality in a person's life. Now, what does this functionally functionally look like for me? This should be the thing that in some way motivates everything I do and say. Paul goes on. All of God should be the reason I do what I do with my thoughts. It should be the reason I desire what I desire. Awe of God should be the reason I treat my wife the way I do and parent my children in the manner I do. It should shape and motivate my relationship with my extended family and neighbors. It should be the, way, the reason I function the way I do at work or handle my money the way I do. It should structure the way I think about possessions and position and power. It should give me direction as a citizen of the wider community. It should form the way I think about myself and my expectations of others. It should lift me out of my darkest moments of discouragement and be the source of my most exuberant celebrations. Awe of God should make me more self-aware and more mournful of my sin while it makes me more patient with and tender towards the weakness of others. It should give me courage. I would have no other way and wisdom to know when I am way out of my league. Awe of God is meant to rule every domain of my existence. Our lives are supposed to be marked by awe. Now I know that for some of you uh, I've already gone too far. For some of us don't do extravagant responses. To be moderately impressed by God would be asking a lot. And for some of us awe seems way off the scale. But I'm afraid that Myers-Briggs won't get you off the hook on this. However exuberantly we express it or not, whatever this looks like, when people like us encounter the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, it really should have some kind of visceral, mind-blowing effect on mortals like us as we encounter God. And that's what Deuteronomy 5 and 6 are about. that the first six chapters of this incredible book, Moses first exposes our sin and then explains that God reveals himself to us and gives us life through his word. And then finally, for this conference, Moses makes us gasp. Now, at this point, I just want to take a moment to explain why I think it's legitimate for people like us, largely Gentile Christians, to read the account of this very Jewish moment as if it is addressing us. I think there are two reasons. The first is, and we sometimes underestimate this, in the Old Testament, Israel is in many places representative of all humanity. The way in which God deals with Israel is a paradigm of the way in which God deals with all of us. And I think this is one of these places. What God says specifically to Israel at this moment and asks of Israel is in a very real sense what God says to and asks of all humanity writ large. Then there's a second reason. There is a basic continuity in the way in which God works. He works by speaking in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The work of God The words of God, the work of the gospel, produces essentially the same response. Before Christ, God speaks, and the default response is that people gasp. In Christ, God speaks, and people gasp. Through the gospel of Christ, God speaks, and people gasp. What response does the gospel produce? Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. He has to stop in the middle of his argument. Because the gospel makes us gasp. And in this passage, God speaks to his people, Israel, and expects a particular response. He expects them to stand back and marvel. And that pattern is repeated over and over again. When God speaks to Peter, James, John, at the transfiguration. When when God speaks to Saul in the road to Damascus. Even when the angel speaks to John at the beginning of Revelation. And when God speaks in this vision, people are awestruck. When our God speaks, people are stopped in their tracks and amazed. That's why we can't read this as God's people, as those who are in Christ, as written for us. Even though that we know that what God has said to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the response that God asks of us, has been ramped up infinitely in the Lord Jesus. So as multiply, 15 draws to a close. Let's recognize and take encouragement and draw energy from the fact that we are addressed by this talking God who wants to fill our hearts with amazement. First up, he wants us to see that we are part of something huge. If you flick back to chapter 5, you'll see that that is strangely evident from the first five verses of uh, Deuteronomy 5. After the morning tea or whatever it was, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Yahweh our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did Yahweh make this covenant, but with all of us who are here alive today. Yahweh spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh, for you were afraid of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. Now, of course, there is one small problem with this. They didn't do any of that. None of it. I know Moses goes out of his way to say, not with our fathers did Yahweh make this covenant, but with all of us who are alive today. But he's already said in Deuteronomy that the previous generation, the generation who died in the wilderness, they were the ones who actually stood on the mountain. At best, some of the people in Deuteronomy, at best, they, they were kids. But lots of them weren't even born. So, what's going on? Is this a senior moment? A stupid exilic editor crassly putting the wrong words in Moses' mouth? I would humbly suggest, well, no, that's a lie. I would dogmatically suggest that it's neither. This is Moses speaking under God at his theologically most brilliant. This is Moses saying, you, we are part of something huge. Yes, I know the original covenant was cut with your parents, but this covenant, this promised Based commitment that God is rolling out to honor all his promises made to Abraham to give you a place where you can enjoy God, to make you a people where you can proclaim the glory of God to the nations. This covenant is not ancient history. It is perpetually fresh and vibrant. There is nothing secondhand or outdated about God's commitment to you. Yes, you're second generation Israelites, but the promises of God are for you right now. You're part of something huge. You see the same thing in six verse three. Hear therefore therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This does give me an opportunity to try to get back into Andrew's good books. After, after inadvertently coming close to committing the unforgivable sin by mention, mentioning thinking about numbers and bad in the same sentence, you know, I suspect I caused Andrew great existential pain and angst and made him wonder if I was actually converted. But Moses, <laughs> Moses comes to my rescue in 6 verse 3 because he picks up both the promise to Adam, the command to Adam, and the promise to Abraham And Moses tells God's people to listen and obey so that they may multiply greatly. It has always been God's plan and always will be God's plan to multiply his people, to build his church locally and globally. And of course, that growth may not be uniform or progress at an even steady pace in any place at any given time, but there is something deeply wrong if we are not praying for, looking for, working for, expecting gospel growth, because God has been committed to gospel growth from the very beginning. And we are caught up in that. And it's huge. We are the recipients of these promises to Abraham which have been transformed and clarified and amplified by the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Even Jeremiah, the most miserable old goat in the Old Testament gets this. He gets the fact that every generation wakes up in the morning and finds that the covenant is freshly baked just for them. Lamentations three twenty one. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love, the covenant love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. See, this is not us waking up in the morning and saying, isn't it good? God is still kind. The world is still a lovely place. This is waking up in the morning and saying, God is still rolling out his covenant plans. That God is still doing the work of the gospel in me and in this world. Therefore, I will hope in him. And by implication, I will pour my life into being part of the great work of the gospel. See, one of the great challenges in reading the Bible, I think, is getting the balance right between the continuity and the discontinuity of the Testaments. So yes, Jesus does something new when he sets up a new covenant through his death and resurrection. But this new covenant somehow isn't a complete departure from everything that has gone before. The new covenant gathers up and extends and stretches and explodes and renews and exceeds the old covenant, but... It does so as we receive all the blessings promised to Abraham. As we saw on Monday night in Romans 1. We get what's promised to Israel. We are part of something huge. And we need to remind ourselves of that every time we set out the chairs for another week. Every time we wait on Sunday mornings or Saturday whenever we meet. To see if in fact anyone will show up this week. We need to remind ourselves of this. Every time we look at the assemble, well, whatever the opposite of masses is, the assembled not masses in front of us. Every time we start to feel overwhelmed by the task before us. As I did yesterday, looking at that very clever sticky tape map of Australia and the big blank bit above New South Wales which is called Queensland, if you don't know. And just a few of your pictures there. (laughs) Boy, that's big. (laughs) What a job lies before us. But we are part of something huge. My uh, favorite Northern Northern Irish theologian, C.S. Lewis, describes this beautifully. Actually, he's really the only Northern Irish theologian, I know, because I always find the attraction to C.S. Lewis a little bit bewildering. But I do like the screw tape Letters where he writes this. He says this, One of our great allies, writing as a senior devil instructing a junior one, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. He says, Don't misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread, uh, but through all time and space and rooted in eternity terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. Writing in the 1950s, he says, All your patient sees is the half-finished sham gothic edifice on the new housing estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. And one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and all in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on the on those neighbours, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided any of them sing out of tune, have boots that squeak, double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must be ridiculous. We need to make sure that we see the church as she really is that we are part of something huge and glorious. And we're also part of something unique. In the rest of Deuteronomy 5, Moses does something which has often been tragically misunderstood. It was misunderstood very early on by the translators of the Septuagint, who I think it's fair to say were almost as bad theologians as they were translators. They're the people who are responsible for the clunky name, Deuteronomy, second law, Mistranslated from Deuteronomy 17, where the king, should Israel ever have one, is told to copy out the Torah, probably Deuteronomy, to read it in his quiet times. And they somehow put two and two together, make about 12, and translate, name the book The Second Law. Okay, it's not very exciting. You know, it's time for a rerun of Mount Sinai. It's law time. Well, no, it isn't. Not, not for Moses. I'm old enough to remember not only the precursors of CDs, cassettes they were called, but there was a precursor of cassettes. Now not vinyl, kind of persisted, but marvelous things called 8-track cartridges. They were basically giant cassettes about the size of a VHS and they were played in what I can only describe as a wide-mouthed tape player. And not surprisingly, they could only hold eight songs. That was the name. However, my strong recollection is, on these eight tracks, um, on almost every one that my dad ever bought, uh, they couldn't find eight individual tracks. They would have like five tracks and three reprises, as they called them. You know, me and Bobby McGee was track one, track four, and track seven, which made... A car journey, a long car journey, endlessly damaging, really. Now, sometimes we read Deuteronomy as if that's all it is. Oh, here we go. There we go. Ten Commandments again. Here It's like me and Bobby McGee for the 147th time. You know, Moses has to fill up the book. I know. I'll repeat the Decalogue. There we go. Great space filler. Nothing could be further from the truth. See, Moses uses the 10 words, which were the foundation of God's instructions to the recently escaped slaves of Exodus 20, to say something vital to this new generation. They are part of something unique. This is their moment. Only they can take it from here. The fascinating thing that Moses does here, well, I think it's fascinating, remains to be seen if you do, is that he actually relativizes the 10 commandments He says, look, remember these 10 words? They're not going to be enough for you in the land. You'll need to take these words and apply them to your new situation. He introduces the 10 commandments with the words, these are the statutes and rules in 5 verse 1. Okay, these are the statutes and rules, 10 commandments. Got that? The 10 commandments are what we need. Then in 6 verse 1 and 8 verse 1 and 11 verse 1, he says, now hold on. These are the commandments and the statutes and rules. No, these are the commandments and the statutes and rules until finally in chapter 12, eventually he gives us some more statutes, commandments and rules. And in chapters 12 to 26, he then basically riffs on the 10 commandments to use the technical term for about five chapters. And then I think he gets a bit bored. He says, look, I've made the point, you've got it. I'm applying the 10 commandments. And then he kind of loses interest in, in following the commandments one by one. Now, why does he do this? To make the point that as they stand on the edge of the land, God's people are at a unique moment in their history. The covenant is now, the challenge to obey is now, and now they're going to have to take under God his words from the past and work out what it means for them to live these out in the now, in the land. To live in a way which is clearly governed by the words of God. But in a dynamic and fresh and faithful way. See quite deliberately Moses sets up the expectation. That for every generation. We will face unique challenges. The challenges of this moment will not be repeated. And we have not seen them before. It is our responsibility to reach Australia today. This day is unique, and it is our day. And whilst, of course, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, nor should we ever lose connection with the richness of the past, we should never act as if the Christian church came into existence last Wednesday, there's another sense in which the challenges we face are specific and unique to our day. That's basically what the writer to the Hebrews says as he reflects on this part of Israel's history. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we'll hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Today is is a unique moment for every generation. In the early 90s, Microsoft ran a great ad campaign for the next iteration of Windows. Can't remember what number it was. Where are you going to go today? The problem was, of course, if you were running Windows, you weren't going anywhere. You were going to sit in front of your computer, endlessly restarting it after it had crashed. But but it did have that end, that sense of adventure and energy and opportunity which Steve brought to life for us last night from Romans fifteen, before he went back to England where he belongs. And, <laughs> and that that momentum, that that outward dynamic, that sense of urgency is here as early as Deuteronomy. As Moses talks about the Ten Commandments, don't be distracted. He's not talking about law, really. He's saying, this is your moment to go in there and live in the land in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The challenge for us, as we've enjoyed the encouragement of being here, of being part of a movement, is to grasp this moment with both hands in the strength that God gives us. To take on this challenge of seeing churches evangelized into existence all over the place, all across Australia. Because this moment is unique. Yet we do need to face the fact that we have a massive responsibility. And that just comes out all over the place in these chapters. 5 verse 24. Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire this day. We've seen God speak with man and still live. He said, now therefore, should we, why should we die? This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have not still lived? They send Moses in. Now, Whatever else is going on, they get the fact that having heard the voice of the living God, having been addressed by Him, having been swept up into His promises, that that is a very big deal. That it carries with it huge responsibilities. Moses carries on in verse 28 And Yahweh heard your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they've spoken to you. They are right. In all that they have spoken. You don't read that sentence very often in the Old Testament, but but it's here. What does God say? Oh, that they had a heart such as this always. To fear me and keep all my commandments. That it might go well with them and their descendants forever. You should be careful, therefore, to do as Yahweh your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that Yahweh your God has commanded you. That you may live, that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. That's not all that God says to us through this book, but it is one of the things. We're under a huge obligation. We carry a massive responsibility. God has spoken, we must listen, we must act, and that only intensifies for those of us who are in Christ. Again, the writer to the Hebrews, still meditating on the, this same event at Sinai, says this in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, I think at Sinai, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, this all is immensely serious. Humility matters, listening to God's word matters, and getting the gospel out matters. Moses continues to fill this out in chapter 6. He says that loving God matters, loving your spouse matters, loving your family matters. Because all these things flow from the gospel and meeting the God of the gospel. Just listen to his impassioned words in chapter 6. And and as we hear these words again, allow God to underline what he has been asking of us to do this week. Verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You'll go home and teach them diligently to your children. You'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. Verse seventeen: You shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and His testimonies and His statutes. Do what's good and right, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that Yahweh swore to give you by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. There's much to say there, but look, whatever we take away from this conference, let's not miss the fact that as the people of God, we not only have unimaginable, unfathomable privilege. But immense responsibility, which makes it such a relief that it is so plain in Deuteronomy six that we have an awesome God. Much to my surprise, I now discover I'm 48, and it's vaguely disturbing that, in all probability, my time in kind of paid full-time ministry is is coming to an end. It's in the second half, you know. And assuming that somewhere around seventy, if not before, I start to be more of a nuisance than anything else to people, um, I've less than I'm, I'm. I'm well past half time. I do have to ask myself sometimes, okay, how am I going to make sure that I finish well? Whether the end comes when I'm forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty, or ninety. Now, I've been passionate about church planting since the first time I think I heard anyone talk about church planting, which was kind of lovely. Um, kind of sense of timing and closure was Steve Timmis about 1996. How am I going to maintain the passion for Jesus? I've been in Brisbane for three and a half years as part of an established church and I'm getting itchy feet to be involved in a church plant again. How can I make sure that I'm still restless in another 10 or 20 years? How can you... As I mentioned yesterday, I know that, that church planning is really sexy until you actually have to do it. You know, until you sit in your lounge room or the pub or the room in church with that gut-wrenching feeling that nobody is going to show. Church planning is ridiculously intense. Every setback, every loss, every tension seems to be magnified about 20 times. How can we cope with all this and keep our heads? How can we cope with all this and, and keep our passion? Our foundation lies in the fact that we have an awesome God, the God of the gospel. It's not rocket science, but ultimately what will enable us to keep going, what will keep us humble, what will help us to stay on track is our attitude to God as we live humbly before our awesome God, the God and Father who meets us and shows us his glory and loves us and changes us in the Lord Jesus Christ and takes up residence in us by his transforming spirit. This is what matters, and this is what God says. We're we're to live radically God centered lives. Surely, John Piper's writing his marvelous little book, God is the Gospel. If you haven't read it, you've actually heard what's in it. God is the Gospel. He takes a little longer to say it than that, but that's what he says. He says, it's a critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? He said Christ didn't die To forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. The people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way to overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, he says, we haven't been converted by the gospel. We have an awesome God. We need to remember that. Hold on to it. Pursue it. If you know any verse in this chapter, it will be 6 verse, verse 4. Not least because Jesus quotes it a few times. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone. Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone is probably the best way to translate it. it this is the slogan that God's people are to live by. This is our God. How would it do that? By loving God, serving God with our whole person, with everything we've got. Works here from the inside out. It's about being the the covenant people of God. It's about living together under this slogan. Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. That's the key to living for God together. It's the key to following God, making God the banner over our lives. It's the key to church planting and humility and church growth and coping with success, whatever that is, and coping with failure, however we define it. This is as fundamental, as basic as it gets. This is our awesome God. That's why we're repeatedly called a fear God in this chapter. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. Do all this, that you may fear Yahweh your God, verse 2. Verse 10, when you move in to all these houses, cities that you didn't build, verse 12, take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve. By his name you shall swear. You, shan- you shall not go, over, go after anyone else. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God surely when we see the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection and rule. As we think about his return, it can only intensify this sense of awe. And this is the gospel-shaped awe which should, must be the bedrock of our desire to serve God and reach the world, of our desire to live for God and to plant churches, of our desire to do whatever it takes. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, knowing the fear of God we persuade others. We never get past this. We, we never will until we have our capacity to gasp and marvel exploded as we get our resurrection bodies and marvel in the presence of our God forever. In Revelation 19, John sees this. And the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And we say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's exalt and rejoice and give him all the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the God we love and the God whom we serve. But right at the end of chapter 6, and with this we're done, Moses makes it very clear that this awesome God, the God whom we should fear, the God who makes us gasp, is the God of the gospel. He is the God who rescues us. When your son, verse 20, asks you in time to come, what's all this about? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, showed us signs and wonders, brought us into this land that he promised. Verse 24, commanded us to do all this, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this. The God we're to marvel at, the God we're to fear, is the God who saves us. Obedience in these verses is just a summary term for responding wholeheartedly to the God who saves us. What Moses is describing in verse 24, the action that God requires of us is simply to throw ourselves in him, to entrust ourselves on him, to to live with him because we have nothing else. When Moses talks about our response to God's saving initiative in verse 24, what will be righteousness for us? He is actually talking about justification by faith. As we throw ourselves on the God who saves. Of course, as the rest of this glorious book goes on to describe this faith that shows itself in obedience is is something we're utterly incapable of producing or sustaining by ourselves. We can neither obey nor fear nor trust on our own. Moses is completely insistent that we need God to intervene to bring us and others to life through the gospel. He not only believes in justification by faith, he actually believes in justification by faith alone through grace alone. That's why Paul is so quick to quote from Deuteronomy every time he's trying to demonstrate the deep roots of gospel thinking in the Old Testament. For ultimately, the message of Deuteronomy 6 is essentially the same as Romans 1. Where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I think it's been a great week here. I found it personally deeply challenging and enormously encouraging. But let's leave the final words of this week to Moses. Taking his words only very slightly out of context. Moses says, hear therefore, O Israel. And be careful to obey God, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Amen.